Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power. Every individual's actions matter in preserving resources. Join the ripple effect to build a more resilient water future. Learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the ripple effect. Support for LAist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. It is Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Austin Cross with you, filling in for Larry this hour. So, so nice to be with you today. Now, if you need your Larry fix, Neil Desperandum, Larry is back next hour for Film Week. This week, the critics review Empire of Light, a new film from director Sam Mendes. We'll also hear about director Antoine Fuqua's latest project, Emancipation, starring Will Smith, and The Whale, starring Brendan Fraser. Oh, and coming up... Later this hour, by the way, you have probably seen several artistic renderings of your friends and family over this past week generated by an AI app called Linza. And some of them look pretty darn good. Not going to lie. But a lot of artists say that AI steals their work. We will let you weigh in. One last thing for you. I am on TikTok live streaming right now. You can find me there at Austin Crosstalk if you want to see images of the radio like it looks like about 13 people have so far at Austin Crosstalk on TikTok if you would like to see what's happening in the studio here. We turn our attention today to Los Angeles City Hall. On Sunday, Mayor-elect Karen Bass will be sworn in as the new mayor of Los Angeles. She will be the first woman in the city's history to hold the office. Now, I'm sure you've heard plenty of discussions here on Air Talk about what Mayor-elect Bass will do when she takes office and what issues she'll take on during her tenure. So today, we thought we'd try a different approach and take a trip down memory lane to look back on some of the most influential and consequential mayors in the city's history. Joining me in the AirTalk time machine today is USC Professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies and Political Science, Anj Marie Hancock. Welcome, Professor. Good to hear from you, Austin. Always a pleasure. Also with us is UCLA Lecturer of Public Policy and longtime Los Angeles Times reporter Jim Newton. He reported for the paper for 25 years. Jim, it's great to have you on as well. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, Ange Marie, the L.A. mayor, by design, isn't as powerful as mayors in other cities like New York. People have called it a weak mayor position in the past, and that's made the job a bit of a unique one. But before we dive too far back in our time machine, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts as to why the framers of L.A.'s charter designed the position in the way they did. Well, you have to remember, too, that Los Angeles itself was founded by a group of people, right? So not just one person, um, but a group of founders. Um, and so the idea that the mayor or one person would have all of the concentrated power actually goes all the way back to the founding of the city itself. Um, so that was what was enshrined in the charter when Los Angeles itself was founded. Do you think that they saw some advantage to not putting all the power in one person's hands, but spreading it out among the, the city council and such? That's pretty much what I'm saying. And I think the other piece of it, of course, is um, at the time of the founding and, of course, 
at any time. Um, you can always see people jockeying for power. That's kind of one of the <laughs> yeah. foundational elements of our, you know, human nature is that people will jockey for power. And so if you have a, a strong city council, you have more opportunities to have access to power um, than if you concentrate that all in a single office. It's also important to note that that's how our nation started, too. Um, the presidency is much stronger today in 2022 than it was in the original framers' uh, minds when they wrote the Constitution. Talking right now with Anjumari Hancock, Professor of Gender Studies and Political Science at USC, and I'm going to bring in Jim Newton, Lecturer of Public Policy at UCLA, also spent 25 years with the LA Times. Uh, Jim, you've seen a few administrations in your time working with the LA Times. How would you characterize the job of the mayor. Now, we know what they, they do, but, you know, when when they approach the actual task, they're thinking, you know, I have to inspire a city, I have to lead it, I have to fix today's problems while also preparing the city for the future. How would you characterize, you know, what, what mayors have to face when they go in at the beginning? Uh, well, that's a good question. And first, let me just say a little word on the weak mayor, strong mayor thing. Uh, you know, it is true that historically, I think this has been regarded as a weak mayor system. I think that's much less true today. Um, hmm. We went through charter reform in the 1990s uh, that consolidated a great deal of authority in the mayor's office, um, gave clear lines of authority for the mayor to hire and fire department heads, among other things. The main thing that this mayor doesn't have that the mayors of New York and Chicago uh, do is oversight over schools. So in that sense, the mayor is not quite the equivalent of those of big city mayors. But in terms of actual mayoral authority, it's really not a weak mayor system anymore. Uh, it was historically. Uh, in terms of what mayors do, um, well, they run departments. They hire and fire department heads. Um, they oversee those departments and the works of their department uh, leaders. Um, probably the one that's attracted the most attention over the years, certainly the years that I've been involved in covering city government, has been the LAPD. Um, prior to charter reform, uh, there, it was very difficult for the mayor to exert direct authority over the police department. Uh, famously, Tom Bradley and Daryl Gates uh, sparred uh, over the leadership of the department, particularly after the beating of Rodney King. Uh, charter reform helped to resolve some of that so that the mayor is under, uh, I'm sorry, that the chief is much more directly under mayoral supervision today than he used to be. Um, uh, and then there's the ho whole host of other duties of the mayor, from the DWP to filling potholes. Um, there is a tendency, I think, for mayors to get uh, overwhelmed by events, um, and that tends to take them off their agenda. Um, and that's because they have a lot of duties. Uh, and it is also an office of, of national note. It's the second largest city in the, in the country, obviously. And in case of Bath, uh, as the first woman mayor, I'm sure she will be a national figure starting Sunday. Anjumari Hancock, political science professor at USC. When it comes to understanding L.A. as a city today, how we got here, what past mayor would you start with if we go back in time that really set the, the stage for Los Angeles becoming the city that it is today? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, I will start with um, just picking up on something that uh, my colleagues just said with regard to kind of being a national or an international figure. Um, I think one of the things that mayors of Los Angeles have done, and this is true of the current mayor, Mayor Garcetti, um, but also Mayor Bradley and all the way back to Mayor Polson, um, is they've also, because of the size of Los Angeles, um, and frankly, you know, a lot of people who live here. Um, so if you think about the entertainment industry and the international figures and corporations that are part of our city, 
um, they have also been internationally involved. Um, and so I think that's one thing that has shifted and changed over time, um, starting with a Mayor Polson who had the opportunity to kind of confront Nikita Khrushchev, you know, mm-hmm. um, in this very dramatic way, um, all the way through um, Mayor Bradley kind of working and not necessarily always agreeing with President Carter's decision where on the 1984 Olympics and Mayor Garcetti getting the 2028 Olympics to come. Um, I think one of the things about Los Angeles location, who's here, is that um, part of what has grown up in Los Angeles has also been ex- um, uh, exported across the world. Um, you know, of course, in terms of pictures and Hollywood pictures, but also in terms of influence um, about how we as a city um, are going to welcome people who come to our city uh, and also um, how we welcome them for international kinds of events. I'm really curious because this is something that we've talked about a lot on our station, not only how California influences the world, but yeah, how Los Angeles influences the world outside of the Hollywood uh, side of things. Any thought as to what it is about Los Angeles, about the, the special blend of Los Angeles that makes it so influential? Ajbri? I would say that it really does start and end with both um, the entertainment industry historically, but I would also pair that with the defense industry. Um, and so when you think about those twin industries kind of forming and shaping Los Angeles in the early parts of the 20th century, um, the folks who came to Los Angeles for those two industries, um, I think, really did have the opportunity to shape how the rest of the world and indeed the rest of the country really think about what it means to be um, uh, American um, in very important ways. Certainly culturally with entertainment, I think we always think about that. Um, but if you think about, you know, the early parts of the 20th century and the Cold War and the ways in which, you know, President Kennedy and others wanted to really have the space industry work in partnership with the defense industry, quite honestly, um, I think there are a lot of things that we in Los Angeles kind of overlook as contributions to how we think of what it means to be an American. Talking with Anjmarie Hancock, Professor of Gender Studies and Political Science at USC. Coming back to Jim Newton at UCLA. Jim, now we, we've already now heard about Norris Paulson uh, and we've looked ahead a little bit. Is there a mirror that you would point to uh, in the city that's really set the stage for the city that we've become today? And, you know, specifically, you know, what ways have you seen? Yeah, I think I would point to two, um, Bradley and Reardon. Um, in very different ways. I think Bradley, uh, for uh, some of what uh, my colleague uh, was just saying, um, and I think in internationalizing the city and uh, in uh, elevating the city to a position of national and international prominence to his effect on uh, race relations in the city. Mm. Um, uh, and then Reardon in a very different way, and in a way that some way re- in some ways reminds me of the challenge that Bath faces now. I mean, Reardon came to office in 93 after Bradley had really lost steam and after the King beating and the riots mm. had uh, really sapped the city of, of uh, its energy and enthusiasm. There was a real sense of the city being lost, I think, in 1993 when Reardon was elected on the slogan, tough enough to turn L.A. around. Um, 
uh, I don't think the atmosphere is quite as toxic today as it was then, but I do think there's a kind of sense of resignation today that the city seems adrift. I, I spoke to former Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa yesterday, and as he said, he said, I've never seen the city so dirty or seen so many uh, homeless people in the city. And I think those problems have led to a sense of that, the, that the government is just kind of stuck. Um, and so Reardon, uh, and Reardon changed that. Uh, not everybody liked him, um, but he was a dramatic change agent. He really saw his foremost challenge as being public safety and law enforcement. Um, and the city, by the time he left it, was a vastly safer place than it was when he came in 93. And some of those were national trends, and some of those were ones that he influenced directly. But, but I think both Bradley and Reardon uh, had profound effects on the city. And in the case of Reardon, uh, took office uh, in an atmosphere that it reminds me in some ways of the atmosphere today. Ange Marie Hancock, uh, we just heard there from Jim Newton, of course, that Mayor Reardon took over after Tom Bradley, uh, which was kind of right on the heels of uh, the Rodney King uh, uprisings. Um, and, you know, obviously there's a lot of thought that maybe the way that Reardon ran his campaign uh you know, kind of turn back some of the progress that had been made in communities of color. Uh, how would you describe the evolution? How would you describe what's changed in the past 30 years and kind of setting the table for what Karen Bass is going to have to uh, handle and confront when she takes office uh, starting on Monday? I think there was a really interesting kind of pairing with what Reardon did and with, frankly, um, grassroots efforts in parts of South L.A. and then eventually in East L.A. as well around race relations in particular. So I think Bass comes into office in a different space than Reardon in the sense of, I think, those alliances and sort of what we've seen, not necessarily with the tapes themselves, but with the response to the tapes Um I think we've seen much less racial polarization. I think we've seen much more alliances and coalition building coming out. And I think that's the result of the past 30 years of community-based organizations really coming together and saying, you know, look, we've shared these neighborhoods. We have common things that we want and we want, you know, even things that the mayor doesn't control like quality schools, but we also want safe neighborhoods. We also want access to quality food and, and other kinds of things where we can really work together and we really don't have opposing interests. Um, and so I think that is kind of the framework that makes um, the context different right now. Um, and of course, Bass's history, you know, in connection to some of that work um, kind of seeds the ground for her to move forward in, I think, a different way. Um, you know, in doing programs and designing programs that will be carried out by these community organi- community-based organizations in partnership with the city of Los Angeles, rather than feeling like sometimes, as they did during the Reardon administration, that they were working at cross-purposes. Really quickly, before we wrap up the segment, I want to ask both of you what you think, uh, you know, obviously when we think about legacy, the legacies of past mayors, we often forget their names, but we remember their contributions, their programs for, you know, decades on. Um, what you think Karen Bass now needs to do, what the, the top things are that she could be potentially remembered for uh, if she's able to address them, especially you know, some of the challenges that the city's had for a long-running time now. Uh, I'll start with you, Anjumarie. What are the, the top things that you think could really help define a, a career here in L.A. politics for Karen Bass? 
You know, I think, well, obviously, I think everybody will say something connected to homelessness, but I think one of the things that she could be known for is a more comprehensive approach to the unhoused population and making sure that there's a public health component, that there's a economic jobs component, making sure that there's a housing component, of course, um, and also from a prevention perspective. So I think that's one of the things that she really could be poised to kind of be known for that, you know, when her time is up in Los Angeles, four years, eight years from now, whenever that might be, um, that would then um, produce a next chapter for her at the national level if she was able to and interested in continuing. Jim Newton, what do you think? I pretty much agree. Uh, I mean, I think that she's got to do something uh, that causes people to feel differently about homelessness in L.A., and that starts with there being fewer people homeless, but I think it goes beyond that to uh, an atmosphere that feels less, for many voters, that feels less pervasive, um, less um, threatening, um, less tragic. Um, and that doesn't mean she needs to eliminate homelessness. I don't think that's realistic. Um, but it does mean that she needs to demonstrate uh, seriousness and, and actual achievement on it. Um, I don't think that she's angling for another office. She's 69 years old. Um, hmm. Uh, I mean, it doesn't feel to me that this is a launch pad for her into national office, but I think she has an opportunity to really use this as a capstone for a very admirable career in public service. And so I, I think she'll make the most of it. I, I, I think we're, there's a lot to look forward to. That's Jim Newton, longtime L.A. Times journalist and currently a lecturer of public policy at UCLA. We also heard there from Anj Marie Hancock, professor of political science and gender and sexuality studies at USC. My thanks to you both for making the time this morning. Coming up, if you're not sick with a cold or the flu right now, you probably know somebody who is This winter season has been tough between the flu, common colds, COVID, and a newcomer this year, RSV. Ahead, we will talk with Huntington Hospital infectious disease expert, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, and a Yale University immunobiologist about the potential connection between the sixth season and the effects of the coronavirus pandemic, and whether we could see more unknown illnesses like RSV making their way into the mainstream. It's Air Talk on KPCC. I'm Austin Cross, in for Larry Mantle, also live streaming on TikTok at Austin Cross Talk. That's T-A-L-K. Back in one minute. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power, inviting everyone to join the ripple effect. Water plays a pivotal role in our lives, and every individual's actions matter in preserving this resource. Each action we take starts the ripple of change, making a greater impact throughout the community. Be part of the ripple effect and learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the ripple effect. Happy Friday. It's Air Talk. 
I'm Austin Cross, on air and streaming live on TikTok at Austin Cross Talk. That's T-A-L-K. Join the fun. Lots of people have. Coming up, if you are a hardworking artist and you're concerned about AI art, we want to hear from you. So stick around for that. But first, a question for you. Are you sick right now? If not you, maybe someone close to you? Winter cold seasons are often rough, but this cold and flu season has been nothing short of eye-popping. A triple-demic of COVID, influenza, and RSV has hospitals strained and health officials concerned. So, why does it seem like everyone is getting sick all of a sudden? And how does this bode for the future? With us to talk about it is Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Director of Infectious Disease and Prevention at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. Doctor, thank you so much for making the time today. It's my pleasure, Austin. Now, I will note that there are lots of possible explanations for why things are the way they are right now. But through my research for this conversation, I stumbled across this concept of immunity debt. I've seen it bounce, bounce around in conversation online. And I want to start by asking you what that is and how we might be seeing it play out this winter. Well, um, I think that immunity debt is an interesting concept, and I think that what you're seeing here is a convergence of these three RNA viruses, COVID, uh, RSV, and influenza. And you're right, your first statement was very correct, is that um, there are many reasons that we're seeing an uptick in all three at the same time, not the least of which is sort of the pre-existing or lack of immunity in the community for uh, the new variant of uh, COVID that's circulating and also uh, the uh, RSV and um, uh, influenza viruses. Um, that being said, immunity debt, what can happen is, and I'm sure Dr. Fox and your other guests can really speak to this on a much more granular level, is uh, the sort of effect that other viruses can have on the immune system that in the presence of yet another virus can either increase or even perhaps decrease the risk of infection with that virus. And, and it can operate both ways. Sometimes experience with another virus, uh, especially ones that are sort of in the same family or have the same kind of immune properties, may actually protect you a little bit. Uh, but sometimes they can also cause alterations in the immune system, which is an enormously complicated system, a very important system, obviously, but very, very complicated. It can cause uh, a, a sort of a decline in the ability to respond to another pathogen. Whether that's playing a role in the uh, advent of these three RNA viruses, we don't know. Do we see people that are co-infected that have more than one virus? Yes, we do. We've had influenza and COVID together in several patients, not a lot, but several. Uh, RSV is probably more a function of just the lack of immunity in young children because of the uh, last two years where they haven't been mingling with other kids. But that being said, the the dance that other viruses do with each other, intentionally or unintentionally, is very, very complicated, but a very important thing to study because it, we, we, there may be some secrets there in terms of further immune protection uh, uh, or understanding the pathology of how viruses cause disease. Talking right now with Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Director of Infectious Disease and Prevention at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. And I also want to bring in Dr. Ellen Foxman, an immunobiologist at the Yale School of Medicine who studies antiviral human defenses against respiratory threats. Doctor, thank you so much for making the time today. Yeah, my pleasure. Just to start, I want to know if there's anything that you want to add that, that might help us understand how we got to this triple-demic, how we're experiencing what we are right now. Yeah, I mean, I really agree with uh, some of the things that Dr. Schreiner has just said. 
um, you know, we actually typically do get a, an epidemic of respiratory viruses every winter, even before COVID. You know, this, the, the, even before COVID, we typically got, you know, hundreds of thousands of hospitalizations for the flu every winter. But we haven't had that the past two winters, which is, which is one of the most dramatic and unexpected things that happened during the pandemic for people like me is uh, we didn't expect flu to completely disappear in, in, um, in the winter of 2020 to 2021 like it did. And we, uh, you know, I think the general consensus is, is all of the behaviors that we were all doing to try to prevent the spread of COVID, like, you know, working remotely and kids not going to school and masks and all those things, they actually were extremely effective at um, making some of the other viruses go away and not circulate as much like, like the ones we're seeing now, like flu and RSV. And so now, uh, now that things are sort of getting back to normal in terms of people's behavior, we're seeing all these viruses coming back at once. You know, um, and all of these viruses we're talking about, coronaviruses, flu, and RSV, all typically are winter viruses. So this is really the first winter where our behavior has been sort of more normal since the pandemic began in the U.S. And I think that's why we're seeing these viruses all coming all coming out now. Dr. Foxman, I'm wondering, in the medical community, did, did people expect this to happen? Maybe not on the scale that it has, but was this expected? And do you think on some level there might have been some communication between you know researchers watching this and public health officials who would maybe say you know we might recommend masking or beyond recommend masking mandate masking just as a way to keep the hospitalizations down well mandating masking is a tough thing as we've learned yes. over the past yes, few it years, is. right so there's a, there's a difference between a mandate and advice i guess of course. but but uh, <laughs> so that, that's I won't get into politics, but I think that actually I, um, there is an ar- there is an argument for using all of the methods that we've learned over the past few years uh, to try to prevent the spread of these seasonal viruses. I mean, something that really happened that was dramatic and probably Dr. Schreiner could speak to this as well is, you know, kids are often hospitalized for asthma attacks and and um, bronchiolitis and these other lung diseases, um, which are caused by viruses or triggered by viruses, really. And we really saw a decline of that during the pandemic, which is a really surprising and unexpected thing. And it was because of these measures that we all learned. We always thought, oh, kids are going to always get these colds and they're going to always go around and then a percentage of them are going to lead to hospitalizations of kids. But what we found out is it doesn't have to be that way. Something we thought that had to be a fact of life. We found it doesn't have to be that way. If you really make an effort, you can actually reduce the spread of these illnesses. And I would love to think that one of the lessons of COVID is it is okay to wear a mask if you're going to the pediatrician and everybody's coughing and everyone's sneezing. Well, now we know if, you, if everyone puts out that mask that they bought during COVID, you know, that'll really help. And that will keep the pediatrician from having to be sick all winter. And so I I really hope that uh, people's behavior does change to reduce. We know that we can make a difference. Whether people will do that or not, um, we'll see. But I I know that for myself, it's made a big difference. I always carry my mask and in those settings, I wear it now. 
Talking right now with Dr. Ellen Foxman, immunobiologist at the Yale School of Medicine, also director of the Foxman Lab, which studies antiviral defense in the human respiratory tract. One more question for you, Dr. Foxman, just about uh, when it comes to how we how we think about our future. RSV seems like it caught a lot of people by surprise here. Is there potential given you know, our past response to the the coronavirus pandemic, is there potential in the future for even more new illnesses that uh, we haven't seen on a on a large scale to, to spring up as a result of, you know, some of maybe the, the protective measures that we've taken in the past that might be triggered then by infections today? Oh, well, I mean, of course, one thing we should have all taken away from the COVID pandemic is there's always potential for a new illness to spring up, a new virus to spring up. And so we need to be doing better surveillance for that so we can be preparing ahead of time and have those vaccines and drugs and everything ready to go. So I I definitely agree that one thing we really learned is we need to be doing surveillance for new viruses that could pop up. Uh, But with regard to RSV, you know, for people like myself who study respiratory viruses, to, to, to the general population, that may sound like a new virus, but to me it doesn't because I know that every single year, uh, way before COVID, from every year if you look back, in every winter kids, are, little, little children are hospitalized for RSV. It's a very common cause of hospitalization in children under the age of one. So I think what, what might be, why we might be seeing, seeing a particularly big surge of RSV this year is along the lines of what Dr. Schreiner said, where this virus is really mostly bad for very young children getting it for the first time. Those are the people who get really sick, whereas an adult getting this might just get a cold. And what we saw in the past two years is those kids didn't, a lot of those kids that might have gotten RSV didn't because of all the behaviors we were doing. So you get this much bigger susceptible population. But I think that after this year, if, 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 Hopefully, if, if our, um, you know, our sort of community behaviors can be back to more normal like they were pre-pandemic, I think we'll get back in the same rhythm that we were before. Actually, though, there are, uh, there's actually vaccines for RSV under development, and that might also change the game with regard to that particular virus. It certainly could. Dr. Ellen Foxman, their immunobiologist at the Yale School of Medicine. I want to come back to Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Director of Infectious Disease and Prevention at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. Uh, Dr. Schreiner, is there any precedent, is there any body of of data or work that experts can turn to to help understand uh, this current chapter that we're going through? Is this something that was completely predictable or are we in some ways kind of a new territory trying to figure out what our future looks like now with the the advent of COVID? Well, I think, you know, there's absolutely uh, a huge wealth of information uh, that we can learn from this pandemic. And I think uh, Dr. Foxman spoke to that, which is, if, if nothing else, we've realized the benefit of masking, uh, and we certainly um, can see the benefit of uh, a, a rapidly deployed uh, but very well-studied uh, vaccine for this disease. I mean, it's, it, it is a truly remarkable achievement to have a brand-new virus that none of us had ever seen or certainly been infected with, SARS-CoV-2, and within a very short period of time to identify it as a, its entire genomic profile and then develop highly effective uh, vaccines using a not new technology, mRNA technology has been around for a while, but being able to deploy it in a way that has saved millions of lives. And I think that in the totality of understanding viruses, as Dr. Foxman has spoken to, I think this pandemic is 
has provided enormous amount of information. We are still in the soup. All of this stuff is happening around us, so we're having to study this in real time, which is a challenge. We did that during the HIV pandemic, and the wealth of information we learned from uh, and about that virus has been very, very helpful in developing all kinds of therapies, including therapies for, for SARS-CoV-2. So I think that we, we need to continue to be um, invested in the scientific pursuit of understanding how this virus works, how it interacts with other viruses, the long-term side effects of this virus, not just long COVID, but perhaps post-infectious issues that can happen years later after you've, uh, infection with SARS-CoV-2, and, uh, and how that spills over, to use a, a term that may have gotten us into trouble at the beginning, uh, into other viruses such as um, RSV and uh, influenza in particular, because influenza is similar to COVID and then it changes very rapidly. Its mutational rate is very high as is COVID. So I think we need to be humble in the presence of this virus, but it has really contributed to the body of knowledge about immunology, virology, uh, and, and how we can prevent and surveil these diseases so that we don't experience this too many times going forward. It's Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Director of Infectious Disease and Prevention at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. We also heard from Dr. Ellen Foxman, immunobiologist at the Yale School of Medicine and Director of the Foxman Lab, which studies antiviral defense in the human respiratory tract. My thanks to you both for making the time today. Coming up, you might have been browsing your social media feed this past week and found yourself wondering... When did Steve become an astronaut? Behold the power of AI art. Sure, it makes us look just great. But many artists are concerned about art theft and what it could mean for their livelihoods. Sound off, AirTalk fam. 866-893-5722. I know we have not had a lot of opportunities to get you in here, but we would love to hear from you on this. If you have tried it out, if you are an artist in any field, and you're actually thinking about what AI could mean to people in your field, 866-893-5722 is the number, or email atcomments at kpcc.org. I'm Austin Cross, in for Larry Mantle, also streaming live on TikTok at Austin Cross Talk. That's T-A-L-K. Lots of talks today. Back in 60 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino adventures of a German Jewish boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price. After escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power, inviting everyone to join the ripple effect. Water plays a pivotal role in our lives, and every individual's actions matter in preserving this resource. Each action we take starts the ripple of change, making a greater impact throughout the community. Be part of the ripple effect and learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the ripple effect. I'm Austin Cross, in for Larry Mantle this hour on Air Talk and streaming live on TikTok at Austin Cross Talk. That's T A L K. If you've spent 
any amount of time on social media this week, chances are you might have seen a few artist renderings of your friends or family. And no, nobody actually sat down for a portrait. These are AI images generated by scraping the interwebs courtesy of an app called Linza. And some of them look pretty good. Not going to lie. Really good. In the first five days of this month, the company behind the app has already raked in millions, all from people who, like me, want to see what they'd look like as an astronaut or a fairy princess. AI art. It is having a moment in your feed, and venture capitalists are pretty into it, too. They poured $1.3 billion, with a B, dollars into the tech in 2021, a 500% increase over the previous year. So every day, people get access to good art for less than the cost of lunch. Yeah, it sounds great, but this is public radio. We wouldn't talk about it if it didn't have a dark side, too. You know how we roll here. Of course, there is the obvious fear that humans might soon use it for sexual gratification. No surprises here. Then there are the artists. In fact, several have taken to Twitter to bemoan the advent of AI tech, expressing concern about stolen styles and what it could mean for their future job prospects. Do you have concerns about AI art, or are you optimistic about what it could mean for the world? Give us a call. 866-893-5722 is the number. 866-893-5722. Now is your opportunity to sound off and i would love to hear from you 866-893-5722 at comments at kpcc.org or you can tweet us at AirTalk. with me to talk about this is sarah conley odenkirk a partner at cowan debates abrahams and shepherd llp where she co-heads its art law and nft practice group sarah thank you so much for making the time to join us today thank you for asking me to be here I want to start with a brief intro to AI art and how it works, because my understanding is that it pulls from works that are already available online, even copyrighted work. How does it apply what it learns from this to make art? And I would say, explain it to me like I'm five. I don't, I don't want to lose anybody here. <laughs> well, I think that we can really just take a look at the very, very basic principles here, because, of course, the more exciting issues are the ones that you alluded to in the intro. Um, but the idea is that the um, person or artist or creator who's using the AI um, program will put in um, a series of prompts. And those prompts, it could be, you know, the names of uh, celebrities or the names of artists or uh, descriptors, you know, anything that that um, the creator is thinking about. And that goes through the, the AI system. And essentially what happens is the web or the, um, the group of materials that the platform uses are scraped. And those images and prompts result in um, a computer-generated image. So that's really the very, very basic um, mechanism. We're also joined by Magnus Resch. He's a professor of art economics at Yale University. Magnus, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And hi, Sarah. Hi, Austin. Hi, Magnus. <laughs> it's a party line now. Well, Magnus, I just want to ask you <laughs> about this criticism that I actually I mentioned earlier about uh, from artists uh, alleging that uh, platforms like Linza, they, they steal art. What do you make of this? Would you consider it? something along the lines of theft or is it just kind of more derivative 
How would you describe this? I mean, it's very common in the art world to use someone else's art and create your own art from it. Richard Prince, one of the most uh, famous and most expensive living artists, is doing exactly that. He's essentially just taking photocopies of existing artworks and sells them for millions of dollars, while the, uh, the original artist sells them for $10,000. So artists don't need to worry about being copied because what really matters is who is the authentic and original owner of the artwork and can prove it. I want to talk about the effects on the industry in general because, as I mentioned earlier, investors are pouring billions of dollars into this technology. And so I've read many conversations taking place mainly on Twitter from artists who say that, you know, this could affect actual livelihoods. This could affect, you know, what people do for a living. Maybe instead of, you know, paying somebody for an artist rendering, they could just go get it, like I mentioned, for the cost of a lunch. Uh, do you foresee uh, AI art essentially working as a, a major change maker within this industry, maybe even disrupting uh, the industry for artists and changing uh, how they make their living in the future if they, you know, can't really count on these gigs anymore where they're making, you know, concept art or things like that? Not at all, because most artists are not making money anyway. And those few artists who are making money, they are part of the gallery museum system. That means in order to sell your work, you need to show in a gallery and you need to be exhibited in a museum. To get into them, you need to convince the gallery, who acts essentially as gatekeeper to the art market. So, galleries, there are only 20,000, and they only have a limited amount of artists that they take on every year. If AI art would, AI art would really take over living artists and, um, and their work, this means that all galleries would need to um, say yes to AI art, which is not going to happen because they are interested in the exchange with real humans. I think that that's true when you're talking about potentially the, just the fine art market, but certainly when we're talking about commercial artists and artists that are, um, you know, working in animation or in video games, um, the, the concerns are a bit different than in the fine art market. There's definitely much less of a story around the artist and the artist's career itself and more a focus on the, the end product, which certainly you know, could be disrupted by this technology. I, I, I just want to very briefly kind of outline the three different areas where I see there being um, questions and, and potential issues. Sure, please do. Um, the first is the creators using AI. And so that's sort of what we've just touched on is um, creators using the AI applications to, um, to create new work based on whatever the underlying prompts are. Um, the second area is the artists themselves who, who have created the underlying work. And so those artists whose work may be already subject to copyright, those artists who may be working and relying on their reputations and, and experience to, to earn money in whether it's fine art or more commercial art realms. And then the third area is the platforms themselves. So the platforms themselves have terms and conditions associated with um, the use of those platforms. And those are kind of all over the board right now. And I, I see that as being one of the main 
um, areas of concern in terms of the way that the technology is delivered to whatever marketplace. Um, and then, of course, sort of, I guess, as a fourth issue is the Copyright Office and the way that the Copyright Office views um, the AI-generated work. You know, I want to ask you more about the platforms and specifically what may or may not be happening behind the scenes and what the concerns are behind the scenes. But we do have to take a quick break. I will say that we are talking to Sarah Conley Odenkirk, a partner at Cowan Debates, Abrahams and Shepherd LLP, where she is co-head of its art law and NFT practice group. We're also talking right now with Magnus Resch, professor of art economics at Yale University. We will return with them in just a minute. But if you have questions, if you have thoughts, about AI art or if you're an artist I'd love to hear from you our number is 866-893-5722 866-893-5722 you can email us at atcomments at kpcc.org and a reminder we are streaming live on TikTok at Austin Crosstalk if you want to see images of the radio back in 60 seconds It's Air Talk here on KPCC. I'm Austin Cross, in for Larry Mantle, and we are talking about AI art. No doubt you've seen in your social media feed over the past week some images of your friends or family, and they are looking great. And maybe they are a fairy princess. Maybe they are an astronaut. Maybe, I mean, one of mine came out, and I definitely looked like a, uh, a demigod. <laughs> This is very interesting art that you can get online right now. But we are talking about some of the concerns that artists have expressed about it. One, about how those sites often draw from copyrighted art. It steals their styles. And another one, another concern is just about what that could mean for artists in the field who are currently working and, and whether or not they'll be able to sell what they do. Joining me in the conversation right now is Sarah Connolly Odenkirk, a partner at Cowan Debates, Abrahams and Shepherd LLP, where she is co-head of its art law and NFT practice group. I want to ask you about something that you kind of alluded to before our break, Sarah, about these platforms um, and and the data that they are able to to glean both online and from the images and ideas that people submit to them. What is the main concern right now about what these companies might do with this information? Well, there's there are a couple of different areas of concern. Um, certainly, there's uh, the concern about what information is being gathered and the way in which AI is learning from um, the information that's being input. Um, and of course, there are considerations uh, that that need to be addressed, having to do with equity and inclusion, and whether the um, the AI uh, whether they're they're learning in a way that is um, racist and um, creates uh, misinformation um, when we're talking about programs that that create writing, for instance. Um, but certainly, you know, it, it's of course a lot of fun to see the the images that come up, and I know that a lot of artists are enjoying very much the process of exploring that and experimenting. But you know, one of the other main concerns has to do with who owns the work that's created by the AI, mm. and I know Magnus can speak to this as well, but. Um, U.S. copyright law says that um, only humans can hold copyright. So you can't have animals owning copyright. You can't have machines owning copyright. And so the question is, when you have computer-generated art, who is actually the creator, um, which is a complicated question. 
And the platforms oftentimes are not being very clear about um, even their position on this. And in some cases, they're saying that, you know, the, the creator, whoever puts in the prompts to, um, to create the artwork owns the artwork. And others are essentially laying it out as a license, which would um, indicate that the platform or the, the AI program itself is the owner of the copyright and they're licensing it back to the person who um, has put in the prompt. So it's a little bit confused. Sydney is calling us right now from Koreatown. Sydney, what experiences have you seen with these uh, AI uh, AI art programs? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Austin. I have a lot of friends. Um, trans- well, you know, Sydney, you might have cut out there. Are you still with us? Okay, we're going to try to get Sydney back on the line in just a second. I want to go to Magnus Resch. Uh, just to ask about uh, this shift that we're seeing in the industry right now, uh, some people might recall, if you ever watched Mad Men, uh, how the ad industry underwent uh, a real change between, say, the 40s and the 60s, where so many ads were done by artists. They were they were drawing these, these scenes of happy families and things like that. Uh, and then photography became the way, uh, you know, and, and a lot of artists were concerned about what their futures would look like. Is it safe to say that AI is going to definitely change the way that artists, not ones in and museums like the ones you were talking about earlier, but the way that artists approach their careers, that they're going to maybe have to find a way to work alongside uh, this art? Because it's clear AI itself is here to stay. What do you think? The highest price ever paid for an AI-generated artwork is $400,000. And that was in... November or uh, in 2018 at an auction at Christie's. The highest price paid for photography of a living artist was $4 million of a work by German photography artist Andreas Gurski. The highest price for a living painter is a male painter um, is around $80 million. So you can see the difference when we talk about is AI taking over um, the art market, it still has a long way to go. And photography has been around as a form in the art market for more than 50 years, and that has only climbed the ranks up to roughly $4 million, while painting sell for 80 and more. So I understand that there might be some fear that um, AI art is taking over. And in the future, when we go to the moment, the next, we only see computer-generated art. But I think we are far, far away from that. Sarah Connolly Odenkirk, you know, I I studied music in my, my younger years. And one of the big things that we had to learn is that, you know, most of the music you hear on TV and programs, it's not a live orchestra anymore. It's one person who's working with one program. That's just the way that technology has changed the industry and it's changed the demand for instrumentalists and even singers. Do you see a future with AI uh, images specifically where Uh, There's going to need to be some massive adaptation on the part of the people that you were talking about, not the ones that Magnus was talking about who are selling large artworks, but yeah, the people who are creating concept art. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, we have to really be clear that there are two different issues to be, well, there are lots of different issues to be thinking about, but specifically with regard to this question, You've got the, the the use of the technology to p- perhaps in some cases replace having um, an artist commissioned to do something in particular. 
um, for, as you mentioned earlier, you know, pennies on the dollar. But the real issue, I think, from the standpoint of the existing artists who make their living creating artwork in, in various marketplaces is that it's not just this, that this new technology is enabling new creation. It's that that new technology and new creation is scraping their works. It's using their works, the existing copyrighted works, in order to create new, um, new artwork. And so the, the question there is, is the use of that underlying artwork that, that could be copyrighted work, is that fair? Is that um, an appropriate appropriation? Is that an appropriate way to create new artwork? Sarah um, Conley, Odenkirk, I'm afraid we might have to leave it there. We are running out of time. But thank you so much for making the time on the show today. We also heard from Magnus Resch. Thank you both for joining the program today. Stick around for Film Week. That is just ahead. I'm Austin Cross in for Larry Mantle. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for joining the discussion. Larry's back on Monday on AirTalk. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power, inviting everyone to join the ripple effect. Water plays a pivotal role in our lives, and every individual's actions matter in preserving this resource. Each action we take starts the ripple of change, making a greater impact throughout the community. Be part of the ripple effect and learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the ripple effect. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us as I'm joined by critics Leo Lowenstein and Claudia Puig. Claudia is the president of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association and the program director for the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. We begin with The Empire of Light, starring the always wonderful Olivia Coleman and Michael Ward. The film is written and directed by Sam Mendes. Claudia, what do you think of Empire of Light? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, Olivia Coleman is always wonderful. Can do no um, wrong. She can do no wrong, yes. Um, and because of that, I wish this had been a better film because it, you know, she deserves the best. Um, and it's and Michael Ward is also really good in it. Toby Jones, um, of course, Colin Firth. It has a stellar cast. There's a sense of melancholy to this film. Um, it's beautifully shot by Roger Deakins. It feels like a farewell to something, and it kind of is a farewell to maybe the whole cinematic, you know, uh, movie going experience. Set but, in an English uh, seaside town? Yes, an or? English seaside town, I think on the south coast. Um, and it's it was this once you know movie palace, and it's still pretty nice. It's in the early 80s. It's during um, Margaret Thatcher's time. And, you know, the country is also going through all this violence with skinheads and um, there's racism galore. And so that's the backdrop. Um, 
It's beautifully shot by Roger Deakins. You feel that, you know, you can't get any better than Roger Deakins either. Um, the problem is it's just muddled by taking on too much. I feel like she plays a person who is um, has some mental health issues. And then there's kind of a romance that with her and, and this younger uh, worker at the at the theater, and then there's you know he's black, and so there's a lot of racism that he has to deal with. There's social issues. Then there's uh, Colin Firth who plays this horrible, philandering, lascivious old guy who who's the manager of the theater, and there's just a lot going on, and it doesn't always cohere. There are moments that I really, I mean, I was always caught up in it, but there were moments that I felt like this this could be really great, but it just kind of went off. Sounds in kind it. of fragmented. It's a little fragmented and meandering. Yes. Yeah. What do you think, Leo? Oh. I think I, I agree mostly with Claudia, as I often do. Uh, the, the film is sort of bathed in nostalgia. There's this gorgeous kind of glow uh, about the the town and the cinema, this beautiful old cinema, the empire. Um, and, you know, Coleman, as this taciturn, very shy, very kind of withdrawn manager of the theater, the, t- the ticket taker, uh, is sort of brought out of her shell a little bit by Michael Ward, who is just sort of terrific as this young guy who comes to work there. There's despite a generational difference and differences in background, they come together in a way and they do sort of kind of connect. They find this connection. And of course, you know, she she heals through knowing him until she doesn't. Uh, she's like this broke this bird with a broken wing and there's a whole scene where he fixes a bird's broken wing. And of course, that's a metaphor for what he does with her, that he kind of heals her. And then when he kind of abruptly ends their relationship, which has has gone beyond friendship, she kind of falls apart. And uh, we learn then that there's much more going on in her background than we ever knew. That, of course, he, as a young black man, is dealing with much more racism and and, and, uh, abuse than she could have ever known. So it's really, in a way, about what we don't know about people, what we don't, what we what we don't always know people as well as we think we do. That's sort of one of the themes. There's that against the background of racism, against the background of sort of this early 80s nostalgia. And then there's also the fact that this is a love letter to cinema. It it has a, a few of the lines are actually almost exactly identical to the Fablemans when they're talking about just what what a what a strip of film is, you know, what what you know, it's it's 24 frames, 24 different pictures in every second. And that's that's a line that's almost identical, um, not unlike the Fablemans, which also had some problems. I think uh, both are love letters to cinema, but this could have been so much better. On the other hand, I did love Coleman and I could listen to her read the phone. <laughs> that is so true. You know, I kept thinking of, uh, I wasn't sure, I felt like she was an enigma, kind mm. of. And I wasn't sure what I was supposed to want for her. Obviously, better mental health care. Um, but it was like, you know, somehow she goes into a movie theater and, and that's supposed to cure her problems. And it reminded me of, like, Silver Linings Playbook, mm. where you dance your bipolar away. It's, you know, it kind of simplifies a much more complex It does. Problem. It does. She has one scene that is so kind of cringe-worthily horrifying but also kind of magnificent in its in the way she plays it it's almost worth seeing just for that scene she just so throws herself into everything, everything. she does yeah. it feels like nothing is held back in her performance i think that's right and you have the feeling that i i had the feeling that her emotions are very close to the surface and she can access she can access her emotions so 
easily, which I think is what makes for a great a great actor in many ways. What a, what a she gift. is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and for Sam Mendes, the writer and director of Empire of Light, the film we're talking about right now, his previous film was 1917, which had very strong reviews. American Beauty, going back you know many many years uh, ago as well, in uh, a couple of the Bond films. Well, so Sam Mendes is the writer and director. He of wrote Empire this just for Light. her, by the way. Oh, he did. Oh, I didn't oh, wow. know that. That's yeah. so yeah. Well, and I mean, just getting to work with him, you know, what it would a gift for everybody. A lot of talented people on yeah. Empire of Light. It's rated R. It's in wide release. Emancipation is directed by Antoine Fuqua, who uh, did the absolutely wonderful uh, series Legacy about the L.A. Lakers that's streaming on, on Showtime. Emancipation is written by William N. Collage. Will Smith stars. Leo, what do you think? This was quite a strong film. It's uh, a true story of an escaped slave named Peter who uh, runs away from a, uh, a a plantation in Louisiana, goes through swamps and forests, and uh, and has an amazing, incredible journey where he has to fight off uh, villains, both human and animal and uh, weather and so forth. And he eventually joins the army. Um, It's really, really beautifully shot. It has a sort of desaturated uh, look. It's almost black and white, but not quite. There's little bits of color. So it it has this feeling of you're looking at not just old, you know, video footage if there or, or actual film footage if there was, but but these photographs that we've seen from the Civil War period, they really seem come to life. Smith is almost unrecognizable in this role. He's he's visibly transformed. He's he's very very good. He speaks in a Haitian accent. Uh, he's born in Haiti, and he's he's ripped away from his family and sent to build a railroad and work on plantations and so forth. And it's a it's a heart it's it's a horrifying story, of course, a true chapter of American history. And it's it nothing is really spared. Fuqua, of course, also directed Training Day, yeah. one of my favorite films. You know, and I was pleased just you know to put my critic hat on and be able to appreciate Smith as an actor and sort of forget. All the other stuff. Yeah, and you were able to push that. It took a minute. I had to, you know, when I when I when I thought about watching it, I thought, okay, I need to remember Will Smith is a very fine actor, and let's 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 give this a chance. And I did. So, you know, let's let's give him a chance. It's an excellent film and a really important story about slavery and a a a true person. Um, Apparently, Larry, the photograph of Peter that was taken, which we do see later in the film, of his bare back, which is ripped and scarred and wounded from whipping. Um, was the thing that convinced many abolitionists that their cause was just. All right, Emancipation, uh, the historical drama starring Will Smith. Antoine Fuqua is the director of the film. It's unrated. It's in wide theatrical release and streaming on Apple TV+. The Whale stars Brendan Fraser as a morbidly obese, reclusive English teacher. Darren Aronofsky is the director. Samuel D. Hunter adapted his own play of a decade ago, The Whale. Claudia? Yeah, the fact that this is adapted from a play um, kind of dogs this film in a way or... or, um, closes it down a little bit. Um, so it, it can feel at times very definitely stagey 
and sometimes overwrought, um, sort of melodramatic. But it is a really heartbreaking emotional journey. And Brendan Fraser gives, you know, this incredibly raw and brave performance that is easily the best of his career. Um, and so it's worth seeing, you know, just for his performance. That's that is completely the reason to see it. And people sometimes forget he was very good in Gods and Monsters. He was fantastic in and, Gods and Monsters. And he, yeah. He's a very strong actor. Yeah, he's not just George of the Jungle or the Mummy or, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, so and he, you know, he just he taps into this d- deep um, well of compassion for this character, and you feel that the character he plays is this is Charlie. He's a English teacher, uh, college teacher. Does all his classes on Zoom because he doesn't want people to see him because he weighs six hundred pounds and he's ashamed of that. He's whip smart. He's tender hearted. He has this wry sense of humor. Um, he's really terrific in this role. He's in this cluttered apartment in Idaho through the whole thing. And you start to feel, I mean, it's, we're meant to feel claustrophobic and we do, um, you know, we feel his suffering. It's both physical suffering and, and sort of existential and spiritual torment. Um, and, um, so it all takes place in this apartment. The, one of the issues is, you know, in order for people to interact with him, they have to come to him. So there's constant knocking on the door. Every 15 minutes, there's somebody coming over. It's like, you, you, at first you're thinking, well, who has that many people coming over all the time? Um, you know, especially for somebody who's homebound and a loner. So first it's a pizza person, then it's his it's earnest, young kind of missionary proselytizing, who's quite good, Ty Simpkins. Um, then it's his furious teenage daughter from whom he's estranged, Sadie Sink. And then it's his ex-wife, played by Samantha Morton. And, oh, and then there's his friend, who also functions as kind of a caretaker, played by Hong Chow. And she's great. Um, it almost feels like, you know, there's been so much attention on his comeback that it almost, whether the movie is good or not, is almost beside the point because it's all about his performance and it's about his his comeback. Um, and... You know, he went through a lot, and personally, he's he had kind of a career stasis, and then he there was a sexual assault that he went through, and he came forward with that, and so this is a resurgence, and I think where everybody's cheering for him too. Um, uh, so I, you know, I found this as a character drama. I was I was caught up in it. It did get melodramatic, um, but um, I thought it was well written. Um, you know, there are people who've been brought bringing up the whole issue of like fat phobia and whether it sort of fetishizes it and makes turns him into, you know, a, a cartoonish character or a monster. Yeah, what do you think about that? I, I didn't think that was. You know, I think he brought so much gravitas to the role that that it, it, it skirts that. There, you know, there. I guess there's an argument to be made for why not just cast a, a obese person as opposed to, you know, a heavy set guy who is just wearing a 300 pound fat suit. But he's playing someone who's 600 pounds. And, yes, um, it's hard it, to find actors that, that weigh that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and certainly experienced ones. Right, yeah. ones that could, you know, draw that level of of depth. So. Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, I think it's an interesting discussion, but I feel that like he did a wonderful job. We're talking about The Whale, starring Brendan Fraser, directed by Darren Aronofsky. Lael? He did do a terrific job. And, you know, as Claudia pointed out, there has been this discussion of, you know, whether it would have been more appropriate to have someone larger play the role or, you know, who, who personally had uh, morbid obesity. But the search for an actor, I believe, took Darren Aronofsky 10 years or more from the time that he optioned this play and was interested in uh, pursuing it as a film. Um, I thought Fraser was excellent. He was, by a mile, the best part of this film. Um, he does bring gravitas. He brings a great deal of, of um, thoughtfulness to it. And if you think about 
Fraser, the actor, not just his body of work, but his body specifically, it's been such an uh, instrument of transformation for him, looking at George of the Jungle when he had to get into this unbelievably ripped shape to others, other roles, you know, where he maybe resembled more his, himself, Gods and Monsters and uh, School Ties, I think, did he start with that? That was maybe a long time ago. Uh, but he, you know, he's had The Mummy, of course, very well known for that. He's had, he's been hot, he's been cold, he's been ripped, he's been not. This is sort of a great summation, it's a great capstone of, of his career and a great summing up. And I think he'll be getting a lot, a lot of awards attention for this. The problem I had with the film was everything else, basically. <laughs> um, I, it felt incredibly staged to me. It felt very theatrical. The opening of the door, I didn't know it was based on a play. I just felt like I was watching a play on screen. I didn't feel that Aronofsky really opened it up enough to make it cinematic. I didn't particularly care for the daughter's performance. Um, I did like Hong Chao, but I felt like, you know, just a, another a little petty pet peeve here. I've taught classes before. He's a teacher. He teaches. I, I, I did like, by the way, the fact that it opens with a Zoom class. You see everyone else's screen illuminated except his is dark. But he uses the word amazing over and over and over again, describing his daughter, describing her work, describing an experience. I thought, gosh, why not come up with a synonym? You're an English teacher. <laughs> Very good point. The Whale is rated R, starring Brendan Fraser, directed by Darren Aronofsky, Samuel D. Hunter, adapted it from his 2012 play, The Whale. It's in select theaters. Coming up, we'll hear about the French romantic drama One Fine Morning and the documentary Second Chance. It's Film Week on KPCC. Larry Mantle joined by critics Claudia Puig and Leo Lowenstein. Up next is the French romantic drama One Fine Morning, starring Leia Sadu. The film is written and directed by Mia Hansen Love. Leo. This is a, a very moving, uh, very emotionally honest film that I, I'm very, very fond of. So Leia Sadu plays Sandra, a woman who's caring for her aging father who is imminently on the decline. He has a neurodegenerative disease. She has a young daughter. She is uh, kind of lost in her life a little bit, trying to figure out who she is, where she fits in. Her father, who's had a lifelong love of books and been a professor, is slipping away with, you know, his memory is going. And she embarks on an affair with uh, an old friend called Clément, played by the wonderful Melville Poupeau, who's been a, a longtime French actor since he was a child. And I've always liked his work. They have this wonderful chemistry, bring each other out. Um, sort of she finds a spark in her life that sort of has been missing for a long time. But at the same time, there's this, this sadness and tragedy of losing her father, trying to figure out how to sort of keep it all together. And sometimes she just loses it. It feels very emotionally truthful, honest. I thought Seydoux gives a beautiful performance and Mia Hansen loves directing is very sort of restrained where it needs to be and opens up the emotions at other times. It it just felt very, very honest, as, especially for someone who's, you know, we're, we're in the sandwich generation where we care for our parents, we care for our kids. It felt very true. One fine morning, the film. Claudia. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, I think that I, I think we'll really, so many people will relate to this 
father, who was also wonderful, an actor, Pascal Gregory, he was this once vibrant, intellectual, you know, professor, and then he's suffering from this neurodegenerative disease, and he's becoming, you know, a different person, essentially. And you know, I think that's, you know, watching, there's a scene where they pack up his apartment, and it's just filled with books and, you know, a life. And um, you watch all that, and you feel the nostalgia, the sadness that comes with all of that, knowing that he'll be spending the rest of his days, you know, in a, in a hospital kind of setting. Um, I really like Mia Hansen Love. She did a film um, about six years ago called Things to Come, which starred Isabelle Huppert. It was um, similar. I think she's really good at capturing a very natural kind of quotidian life. Um, the actors feel very natural. There's a chemistry among all of them. And while, you know, uh, Leia Seydoux's character is suffering with what's going on with her father. She has the joys that come from this romance. And then her little daughter, who's adorable. And there's just this chemistry among all of them. You know, you really get the sense that there's this ensemble of actors. Um, the woman who plays her mother, Nicole Garcia, is also a really good actor. Um, and it's about heartbreak. It's about, you know, romantic heartbreak and sort of the fading of a well-loved parent. But it also has these winsome moments of humor. And I really appreciated that that Paris looked unglamorous. Mm. It just looked, you know. How do you do that? I know. I know, <laughs> right? quite a trick. <laughs> it was just Parisians going about their day. Yeah. One Fine Morning, starring Léa Seydoux, written and directed by Mia Hansen-Love. It's in French with English subtitles, rated R at Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A. The document documentary Second Chance uh, tells the story of the man who invented the Kevlar vest, Claudia. This is such a fascinating documentary. It's kind of in the vein of Errol Morris documentaries. Um, we actually showed it at Santa Barbara last March. Um, and it's fascinating and surprisingly entertaining. Uh, it's about this guy who invented the bulletproof vest. He was he had a pizzeria and he was bankrupt. This was back in 1969. And so to prove that it works, he shoots himself in the chest. He wears the vest, of course, and shoots himself in the chest point blank 192 times. He's this kind of, you know, outspoken, brash guy. He becomes sort of a celebrity among police and gun owners and um, you know, he claims that his company has saved, this body armor has saved all kinds of lives, like 3,000 lives. Um, and the film chronicles his rise and fall, and he's really a man of contradictions. He's, he, it's really compelling, I thought, compelling and fascinating, um, and it's also sort of terrifying. Um, it would be easy to, he feels almost like a character that a screenwriter would create. You, you know, it would be easy to kind of write him off as a caricature. Um, but, you know, he's so loud and desperate, and he's filled with braggadocio. Um, and but he, it's a real person. It's a real person. <laughs> and he will compel some people and he will repulse some others, but it's uh, fascinating. Second Chance is the documentary. By the way, it's directed by uh, Ramin Barani uh, Lael. Yeah, I think he does both. He compels you and repulses you, sometimes both at the same time. <laughs> yeah. um, he is kind of a showman. He really, uh, Richard Davis, who started this company, he loves telling stories. He's a raconteur. He, he for a long time, he was making these low-budget little promotional movies that are so kind of schlocky about how well his vests work. And he's got his own sort of code. He's like an old kind of Western hero guy. He's like, you know, I, I always tell the cops if they, if, they sh if they shoot, if they kill the guy who's, who my gun saved them from, I'll give him a free 
gun. You know, he has all these kind of lines like that. Um, he, Barani lets him trip himself up, which is interesting. Like he asks him, he says, was there any time when you ever weren't honest? And Richard Davis says, well, no. And then he goes on to show a time when a couple of times when he wasn't so honest, including one very important one about, uh, well, when the when they started using um, Xylon, a new material in the vest, instead of instead of uh, in, instead of the Kevlar, ev- instead of the Kevlar, um, I think it's called Xylon. Zy- yeah, they changed they changed the material, and then they found out that this new material um, degraded faster than the than the old material, and that actually leaded to, led to some lawsuits and caused some problems, and the vests didn't work as well as they did. That's one instance of his lying. Another is where he bribed a young teenager who uh, had gotten arrested on a breaking and entering thing and tried to get him to take the heat for an accidental bullet that had ricocheted during one of their one of their shooting festivals, which he had nothing to do with. And then, so he was sort of caught up in this whole in this whole imbroglio thing. Um, it was it's a very good film. I thought. I really like Barani's style, just sort of letting Davis talk and letting him put himself out there. I like these docs about weird people, and I thought this was particularly well done. Well-chosen subject. Uh, Richard Davis in the documentary Second Chance. It's unrated. It's at the AMC Burbank Theater and downtown Los Angeles at the Alamo Draft House. The uh, Chilean drama Blanquita stars Laura Lopez. The film is written and directed by Fernando Guzzoni. Claudia. Lovely accent with Blanquita there. No, um, <laughs> um, this is a very suspenseful psychological thriller, and it's it's based on a real case of child abuse that happened in Chile. Um, and it is you know the submission for the for the international um, Oscar. Oscar award yes, uh, from uh-huh. Chile, and it and it. It should be. Um, it's multi-layered. It shows how the deck is stacked against the most vulnerable and underscores how the most powerful get away with things. Um, it's based on the case that happened in 2003 in Chile. Um, and it was this very wealthy businessman named Claudio Spignac. And he ran this child abuse ring. Um, he was eventually sentenced on multiple counts of sexual assault. And I think he served in prison, but he's, he uh, got out in 2013. His co-accused were not uh, imprisoned. And this is about this young woman. It really uh, completely centers on Blanquita, who's a single mother. She works at an orphanage that seems to be run by one priest. Um, and there's all these kids, and he's beleaguered because the, you know the, no one else seems to be helping him. And he's devoted to caring for these kids who've been traumatized in various ways. They're living on the streets. Um, they've been abused. And so she's really close to this one boy, and he wants to talk about the sexual abuse that he's had, but apparently this doctor determines that because of the fact that his mental health is already so shaky, if he were to testify, it would kill him. And so this frustrates to the priest, and then she comes into the fore, and we hear that, you know, having talked to this one uh, young man, Carlos has brought back um, suppressed memories, repressed memories. And then what we don't know is whether she's actually tapping into repressed memories or if she has talked to this boy and she's absorbed some of that. But, you know, the the greater issue is you want to have this guy put away who's, who's done these things in this whole ring. And I love that the director focused on the psychological experience and how she grows and evolves. And, you know, she starts off a little shaky and then she grows... Uh, defiant, and then she gets confidence, and then she get, has doubt, and and then she panics, and then she eventually finds her power to come forward. And I think he's really interested in the ways that 
individuals and Chilean society and the legal system respond to wrongdoing and, you know, who, who, who's doing the leveling of the accusations and, um, you know, class and all of that. I, this is a really riveting, uh, it's, it's told very suspensefully and really well. And strong performances. Very much so, yes. Yeah, it's morally complex and, and strong performances, yeah. Blanquita is the film. It's unrated uh, in Spanish with English subtitles, and you can see it at Lemley's Glendale Theater. The documentary IMDb Cooper tells the story of the hijacker whose disappearance, of course, remains mysterious. T.J. Regan is the director of the film, Lael. So any fan of Unsolved Mysteries will, <laughs> will know. How many episodes have been done on D.B. Cooper? <laughs> oh, so many, so many. But I've always been fascinated by the D.B. Cooper story just because he was, he's the only... Um, hijacker who was never found. Um, And just a tiny little quick refresher, he, in 1971, hijacked a Northwest Orient plane, which was going to, uh, from Portland to Seattle. Uh, He told the flight attendant, then called the stewardess, that there was a bomb on board. They they were convinced that he was serious. They landed it, and then uh, he took off with a skeleton crew having demanded a parachute opened the rear stairs of the plane when it was in flight and parachuted out, never to be seen again. Somewhere into the forest. Exactly, somewhere into the forest. And then some years later, maybe 10 years later, some of the money that he had been given, the ransom money, the the payout was, was found on a beach in the Pacific Northwest, and it was, you know, traced back to the the D.B. Cooper incident. And what happened was a guy named... Rodney Bonifield claims that he is the long-lost D.B. Cooper. He has kept this secret his whole life, allegedly, and uh, because he was about to go to jail on some other unrelated charge, he decides to sort of unburden himself, and he does so to a pair of bounty hunters who are then fascinated enough by his story, real-life bounty hunters, that they are fascinated enough to tell this filmmaker who, uh, that's how it got to T.J. Reagan, the, the Reagan, the filmmaker. So he himself had always been fascinated by the story. It's a bit of a sort of roundabout way of doing a documentary on D.B. Cooper with interviews of this guy, Rodney Bonifield. We don't know if he really is D.B. Cooper or not. I, 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 will, I will just say this. There are plenty of reenactments, and there's, an, there's plenty of documentary footage, not, not enough documentary actual footage. There is some evidence that suggests that he might be, but in many ways, the filmmaker undercuts the film's persuasiveness by the mixture of tons of reenactments and the doc stuff. I am D.B. Cooper. T.J. Regan is the uh, director. It's unrated. It's at the Cine Lounge Sunset coming up this Sunday and available on demand. And finally, we have uh, just about a minute and a half for a new documentary on the Reverend Al Sharpton. He's been called many things, as he says. Loudmouth is one. I guess he embraces Claudia. Tell us about the documentary from Josh Alexander. Yeah, well, 
Sharpton makes no bones about the fact that he uses the media to focus a spotlight on a very important issue, of course, racial injustice. And he's tireless. He's just, you know, seemingly indefatigable in his fight for racial justice. I was really intrigued by the way it showed the difference between the Reverend Sharpton of the 80s, you know, with Tawana Brawley, who was loudly practicing civil disobedience and really critical um, of whites as a, as a group of people. And then kind of the Sharpton that we know now, who is more of an old school liberal. He's on MSNBC. Yeah, more of a pundit. Type. Yes, more of a pundit. And it seems more mellowed. Um, and of course, he looks radically different. He lost over 100 pounds. Um, and I, I like that it chronicles that evolution, but I feel like it leaves some of the pushback against him. Uh, there aren't other people talking. He uses some archival footage. Um, and I wish it had challenged maybe a little bit more of that head on. Um, you know, it, his focus is, is, is he a rabble rouser or is he an activist? Is he an opportunist? Is he, was he a trailblazer? Um, and I think, you know, maybe he was all those things, but, um, he has been a polarizing figure and it's kind of strange. I, I, now looking back thinking, why was he a polarizing figure? He was saying all the right things, you know, and, and he, you know, when he was talking about George Floyd, he was saying, you know, take your foot off our necks, you know, as a, as a group of people. So I feel like maybe it was just a, a, well, the Tawana Brawley time. thing did a great yes. deal of damage, I it think, did. to his it reputation. It did, and they the do time. look at that, yeah. Um, and he sits in a room and, and talks. You know, he's also a very, uh, you know, a well-appointed room. He's made money. He's, he's And he, when he, he sees looters, he kind of goes after them and says, you know, you don't need to do that. So I feel like he's a, he has evolved into a different person. I guess some people would say he's mellowed. I feel like it didn't delve deeply enough, um, unfortunately. It, it kind of covered all this in a cursory way. Um, but it's interesting, and he's it, certainly a, a you know fascinating subject to to chronicle. Oh, what a life, even to this point. Yes. Um, uh, the Reverend Al Sharpton, the documentary Loudmouth, directed by Josh Alexander. The film is unrated. You can see it in select theaters. Our Film Week critics joining us, Claudia Puig and Leo Lowenstein. Our John Horm is going to be joining us shortly uh, with conversation with actor Anna Jope. That's all coming up right here on Film Week on KPCC. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Anna Jope is a Sengalese American actress starring in the new film Nanny. Joe plays Aisha, an undocumented immigrant from Senegal who's a single mother. She's hired by a well-to-do couple who have no interest in her personal life and who also exploit her by demanding that she work overtime without pay. Our John Horn spoke with Joe about Nanny. I want to ask you a little bit about the first conversations you had with your director about this character and about the important aspects of the story that you both felt were essential to making this film work? The first conversations I had with Nikki Atu were me trying to get clarity about Aisha's mental state and how Nikki Atu viewed Aisha's mental state. Is this a woman that's experiencing some form of schizophrenia? Is that a part of her past? Does she have mental illness? Um, a history of mental illness, or is this really and truly a, a woman that is completely of sound mind that's experiencing these spiritual entities that are now imbuing her reality in, in her dreams? And so Nikki Atu 
is such a generous director in that she didn't want to give me a straightforward answer because she wanted me to come to that decision myself. But I could tell from her response to my question um, that she was definitely leaning towards the latter. And, and as an actor, your job is to just make choices. And for me, I try to make the most interesting, complex, dynamic choices for my characters. And for Aisha, that was that she is completely of sound mind, incredibly intelligent, very grounded. And instead, um, she, she's now contending with these things that are very real, despite her not being able to, for the most part, have a tangible uh, proof of them. So that it is the world that is out of balance, not her. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And I think that that's so powerful, especially when you're telling a story of, of, a, of a protagonist, of a person that we don't often get to see and that we barely know, really. There are ways in which this story can be told, and many of those ways would spend too much, or let's just say a lot of time, on the family for whom Aisha works. And I suspect that was you know, perhaps a conversation that the people who are making this film or financing it had, but it feels very deliberate and intentional. And I, and I, I think you, you and your director might have resisted this, that their story is not important. Yes, this is a family that has troubles and yes, their marriage is falling apart, but that's not the story, right? Yes, your thought is exactly correct. It was something that we fought for. Especially in Nikiatu, she was adamant on keeping the gaze on Aisha. She was adamant about not further exploring this white family because she was constantly getting that note and constantly getting that request. Well, what about Amy's this and that? And what about the relationship? And maybe we should throw in one or two more scenes about this. And why don't we just add a piece, a dialogue for so-and-so? You know, she was constantly, constantly veering people away from that. And these are, you know, these are were our, our partners in this film and they're incredible people. They're the ones that gave us the money to make it. But, you know, we all kind of fall victim to this um, experience of centering whiteness. We're just so used to it that it takes an active effort <laughs> really to kind of veer away from that. And I'm so glad that she's so strong in who she is and her vision for this, that she stuck with that. I'm gonna ask you about a very important contributor, colleague, partner in the making of this film, and that is your cinematographer, Rena Yang. Rena, and certainly Nikiatu, is very focused on your face and what your face and what your body looks like. So let's talk first, before we talk about what hasn't happened in the past, about how that's important, not just for this character, but for film in general, that your face, the face of a black woman, is just as important as the face of a white man. I worked on a series and after the first season aired and I watched it and I was really kind of disappointed in, in the ways in which I was lit, the ways in which you often couldn't see me, the ways in which I was lit poorly or in a way that was very unflattering. I came to the team during pre-production of second season and I said, look, these were my feelings about the lighting in season one. How do we remedy this? And the response I got was from our DP who said, 
well, when you are in a scene with your co-stars who are all white, save for Ryan, who is half white and half Japanese, I have to prioritize, or rather, I have to choose that I will like them properly over you. And you know, how does one respond to, to something like that? Um, and so me being lit improperly or unflatteringly, that continued to happen. And it's a bummer, it's a bummer because as a Black woman, I move through life most oftentimes invisible, as Aisha does. And to finally get to a place where you're literally in front of a camera and literally in the homes of millions of people and still invisible is quite uh, disheartening and upsetting and frustrating. And so it was in Nanny, a transformative experience to know that I could trust these women <laughs> that were creating the images that, that I deserve to have and that we as people deserve to, to have as black people, so. I think the fact that you couldn't be lit the same way that white characters could be lit says everything you need to know about Hollywood and representation in a nutshell. In that moment, who is visible, who isn't, who gets the priority, who doesn't. Um, and it's, to me, it's really heart, it's heartbreaking, but it's true. Yeah, it is. Like you said, it's a microcosm, right? Of, of the greater truth and reality of the world that we're navigating. And we all are, are just, again, victims of what it is to live in a world that centers whiteness. And that is simply the world that we live in. And we're all, again, having to actively, actively and intentionally work against that. Couldn't agree more. I want to ask you a little bit about the character in this film is somebody who comes from Senegal. Um, I think that's part of your background as well. And I'm thinking about the story of somebody who is from another place and what that means in Nanny and what it means to you, that even if your life experience doesn't mirror your character's experience, was there something about the nature of being from a different place that you were able to draw upon in this performance? Absolutely, yeah. I am from Senegal, I was born there and we moved to Houston when I was six. And certainly just the experience of being alien is something that I just know very well and that Aisha now, and when we meet her in the film, she's only been in New York for a year. She's now for the first time in her life navigating what that is to be alien in a new space and to have to tread a little more carefully. There's a really interesting, or there's a line that I love when she um, walks into the lobby after um, after work and she runs into Malik and his son. And she says, they allow you to bring him here. He goes, allow me, shit happens, I brought him. And for Aisha, that moment is it's kind of like, oh, okay, the kind of audacity or boldness or confidence of, of the people around her that look like her and the, the way that the fact that they're still doing things that feel right to them and that they want to do without so much concern or worry about the ways that they might get in trouble for that. Or um, I just, I, as an immigrant, as a person that's sometimes navigating, having to tiptoe and, you know, a space that isn't yours and a space that's alien to you. That was just a really profound line and moment to me. 
I want to ask you one last thing about stories involving trauma and pain. Uh, the new movie, She Said, is about Harvey Weinstein and the reporters who took him down from the New York Times. And the filmmaker very intentionally said, we're not going to see any of the assaults. The new movie about Emmett Till very specifically does not show anything happening to Emmett Till. You certainly see you know, the aftermath of it. And then there's other people who make different choices. And it's tricky because if we don't understand and confront the violence and damage that has been caused, it's hard to move forward. But at the same time, it's very easy to indulge in that and almost use it as a tool that is um, gratuitous. Like, where's that line for you? And how do you how do you weigh that decision? I will say Nikki Yatu is very adamant and very intentional about, and I don't want to spoil the film, but leaving it in a place of hope. Um, because in her words, she is exhausted from taking in media, taking in stories that are only um, positioning Black women or Black people in places of despair and trauma. Um, there's so much more to us than that. And I think when we talk about, she said, when we talk about filmmakers and projects like this that are um, turning the camera, turning the gaze towards something um, outside of just trauma. They're they're doing it because there is more to us than that. And there's more to explore than that. And I'm all with that. I'm so, I, I so agree with that. I so support that. But again, it is tricky because on the other hand, there's power in showing that image too, hopefully, and that it's hopefully blowing up empathy in people. And, and hopefully moving toward people towards action because um, we've seen that happen as well in the past. And so it's really like everything else in life, a balancing act. And we are all as artists just trying to find and strike the right balance. That's our John Horn talking with Anna Jope, star of the new film Nanny. It's at the Culver Theater in Culver City through this weekend. Coming up, John talks with director Laura Poitras about her new film, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. It's Film Week. We'll be back in one minute. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. The new documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, traces photographer Nan Golden's efforts to expose the Sackler family of Purdue Pharma's role in the opioid crisis. Director Laura Poitras explores Golden's life and career as well as her activist work in this conversation with our John Horn. I am going to start with a clip that comes early in this film. This happens inside the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So this being radio, we can't see what is happening. Will you describe uh, who the speaker is? It's Nan Golden, what she's doing in this moment, and why this is the starting point for your movie. 
Right. So this is the beginning of the film. The film sort of uh, has a cold opening. You sort of dropped, drops the audience in sort of in deep water. Um, Nan is organizing an action at the Metropolitan Museum at the, the Sackler Wing, the former Sackler Wing, um, protesting the Sackler name being on the, the walls of the, the Met Museum. And she and her organization called Payne um, stage launch a, uh, a direct action where they've taken um, they've they have these pill bottles and they put these sort of fake um, oxycontin uh, prescription labels on them that talks about the death toll and the role of the sacklers and throw it into this sort of um, it's like a reflecting pool reflecting pool thank you and this is the first action of 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 pain um, that that they did is the first direct action it was front page news and then the the film kind of you know rewinds from there and we learn about Nan's creating of the this organization to to shame the Sacklers. If people are unfamiliar with the Sackler family and Purdue Pharmaceuticals, I'm going to read the opening statement that Carolyn Maloney, uh, representative from New York, made in December of 2020 at uh, the Committee on Oversight and Reform for the House of Representatives. She says, and I'm quoting her directly now, at the behest of the Sackler family, Purdue targeted high-volume prescribers to boost sales of OxyContin, ignored and worked around safeguards intended to reduce prescription opioid misuse, and promoted false narratives about their products to steer patients away from safer alternatives and deflect blame toward people struggling with addiction. And most despicably, Purdue and the Sacklers worked to deflect the blame for all that suffering away from themselves and on the very people struggling with the OxyContin addiction. So that's what Purdue and the Sacklers did or are accused of doing. How does art figure into the other part of the Sackler story? You know, it's a long story. It goes back. Um, it's sort of uh, Patrick Radden Keefe, a renowned journalist who uh, has written the book Empire of Pain and is interviewed in the film. He sort of he, he sort of charts the history of the Sackler family and um, and it goes back before OxyContin. Arthur Sackler um, develops this kind of you know playbook for for marketing prescription drugs to doctors, um, and he does this with the with Valium. And uh, and he, he actually creates a, a medical journal, but the medical journal sort of, sort of exists for the ad, so it goes to doctors, but they it sort of was created to sort of have these ads, and the ads were you know targeting doctors, and he was sort of the the first person to do that and tar directly target doctors, and then he also creates this database system where you can see who is overprescribing. Um, and then you, you know, sort of double down on marketing to them because you can make more money and this sort of whole kickback scheme. And then, you know, fast forward to OxyContin, which was after Arthur died, but this kind of playbook is sort of used again. And so they, they bring our OxyContin to the market. They um, pressure the FDA to um, put this label on it that downplays the addictive properties of OxyContin. And then they start aggressively aggressively marketing it. And this is, you know, the early 2000s, end of, end of 90s, early 2000s, aggressively marketing this drug and downplaying its addictive properties so that it's being prescribed, not for people who are post-surgery or who are dealing with, you know, um, terminal illness, right? Where, you know, you need these drugs. I mean, these drugs are important, right? For, for people who are really suffering, but for like minor um, ailments. And, you know, when, when it becomes very clear, and, you know, the tragedy of the story is that there was investigative journalism being done in the early 2000s that that alerted the public, the government, everyone to the abuse of and and the destructive power of OxyContin. So you have like the the writer Barry Meyer, 
who's writing for the New York Times is saying like, this is destroying communities. Like, you know, the, the numbers are off the charts in terms of like the addiction and, you know, and the, 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 what Purdue Pharma, the, the marketers, uh, the makers of OxyContin, which are privately owned by the Sackler family, you know, their response of that is like, how do we sell more? And, and they, they start to, you know, it's, it's, you know, the film, my film doesn't chart this whole, uh, the kind of origins of like, of OxyContin because it's been so well documented by other um, journalists and filmmakers. So if you were to see um, Dope Sick on Hulu, it kind of goes back and, and, and tells that story. Um, and, but in terms of your question about the art world, you know, the Sacklers are very um, cleverly you know, are making their money through the sale of these drugs, but disassociate, you know, keep their name sort of out of the press or like you don't, you know, it's like Purdue Pharma is kind of the, you know, the company, but you don't, they, they keep a very low profile in the sort of how they make their money. And then there's a sort of um, white, uh, sort of art washing of, of the blood money into cultural um, spaces, museums, and also universities and medical schools. You seem to make a very specific choice not to talk about how people in this organization got addicted. Tell us about that decision because it is clearly a choice that you make. Absolutely. Like there was like we had no interest in this being a film that, you know, is about sort of reach, you know, like we wanted this to shift the shame, that the shame belongs on the Sacklers and the family and the boardrooms and the people who are, you know, who've allowed this, you know, dangerous drug to be misprescribed. That's Laura Poitras, director of the documentary All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, in conversation with our John Horn. The documentary is showing at the AMC Sunset 5 through this weekend. From all of us at Film Week, have a wonderful weekend, and thanks so much for joining us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.